We have been, if you're new to this, uh, our, our title of the series is God's Got This. And last week we kind of really uh, identified, I hope you identified the this or the these in your life that seem like it's just out of control. Maybe the news has you fretting uh, of the condition of the world, the condition of our nation, or even personal things that you're going through with family and relationships or circumstances that are going on in your life that seem beyond you, beyond reach, beyond hope, beyond help, that you are reminded through this study that whatever it is, uh, whether it's on the, the world scope or our national scope or your personal scope, that God's got this. Let's say that together. God's got this. He is in control, and we are looking at and we're focusing on the character of God. Anytime we study a book of the Bible, we focus, first of all, on the character, the attributes of God. And we see in the book of Esther his providence, his sovereignty, his goodness in our life, that he is in control and that he has a plan for our life. And he is not finished writing our story until he calls us to be with him eternally. He is constantly writing our story. And so when you feel like he's absent, when you feel like he's forgot where you are and your address and where you live, I hope that you are reminded again throughout this study each and every night, each and every week that, that God's got that situation and he is still writing your story. Uh, those that are reading your story are your children and your grandchildren and those that you work with and those that are in your realm of influence. And they're watching your life. They're watching your faithfulness. They're watching your response to the situations, to the circumstances that arise in your life. And so last week we began kind of giving an introduction to this, reminding us that this isn't primarily the story of Esther. It's the story of God. It's the story of God's providence. It's the story of God's grace in our life. And then we looked at his saints. We looked at the captive of Israel, and we looked at the committed of Israel, some of those that were already gone back to Jerusalem and beginning to rebuild the temple, some of those that were still there in the Persian Empire, like Mordecai and Esther that we're going to be examining and looking at closely, who were faithful to God. But then the third part of the introductory notes, or the third part of last week's lesson, is not only his story and his saints, but his salvation. And this is the part we didn't make it to last week. But we see God's salvation. Again, the redemptive thread throughout Scripture is God's redemption plan for mankind. And we see that in the story of Esther, first of all, in, uh, in his salvation for the children of Israel physically. We see in the book of Esther that he delivers them, he redeems them, he saves them physically. And we will see that Mordecai uh, is, is the one who God uses to do that. He and Esther, Mordecai takes a stand for God by refusing to worship another person. Look, if you would, at Esther chapter 3. Go over to chapter 3 and look at the first two verses. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gates, they bowed and they reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. 
Notice this next phrase and mark it in your Bible. It's an important part. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. So because of this, Haman, because he's filled with pride, he's filled with hate for the Jewish people, he determines not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews, to get rid of all the Jews in Persia, and to have Mordecai die a very public and humiliating death on gallows that he himself built. And yet we see in this story, and we're going to see it in detail, but we see again in God's providence and under God's control, none of this takes God by surprise. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? God is never surprised. When we're surprised, God is never surprised. And so in God's providence and under his control, the story takes a huge twist. And we'll see it in detail. But the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, who had promoted Haman to this position, now demotes Haman and promotes Mordecai to Haman's position and sentences Haman to die the death that he himself had prepared for Mordecai. Let's look at it in Esther chapter 7. Again, we're going to look at it in detail, but I want to kind of give you a a large picture of the story. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. And Harbinah, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him, hang Haman thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Look at chapter 8. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jews' enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king... For Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Again, by God's providence, by God's sovereignty, God placed his people in the right place at the right time to bring physical salvation to the people of Israel. And again, I remind you, That God has you where you are right now, although you may not have planned to be where you are. God has you where you are for such a time as this. God has you right where you are to impact people around you. And so never see yourself as insignificant because God has placed you right where where you are for a reason, for a purpose. He's brought you from the Northeast. He's brought you from Iowa. He's brought you from Florida. He's brought you from all over the United States, from Colorado, from California. He's brought you here to Jamestown, Tennessee, from Pennsylvania, for many of you to receive salvation, for many of you to to get plugged into a church where you've never been really connected to a body of believers before. And he's put some of you in a position in a daycare to impact children and families. And he is doing all of this by his divine plan and purpose for such a time as this. Don't see it as insignificant. See that God has you where he has you for a reason. So we see God's salvation for the children of Israel physically, 
But don't ever think when you read the scriptures that there is just a a physical or a human um, meaning because what we see in this story is that God's salvation is also for the entire world spiritually. We see through this story that God has a bigger picture, a redemptive picture of salvation than just the the physical. You see, just as the Jews were set to be destroyed by King Ahasuerus and, and also by Haman, mankind, you and I also, we were sentenced to eternal judgment and death for our sins. However, the entire Bible reveals and it points us to an opportunity of redemption and an escape from eternal judgment for every person who would turn in faith to Jesus Christ. See, the bigger picture in this is that God has a redemptive plan for mankind by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for our sins. And one of my favorite scriptures is found in 2 Peter in chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. I love this phrase, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And as we read the word of God, we're reminded of this, that God has a redemptive plan for all of mankind. In fact, when God created Adam and Eve in a perfect environment, in the the Garden of uh, Eden with a free will, yet free of sin, even when he created them, did you know that he saw He saw in his providence, he saw in his sovereignty that there would come a day where they would sin. And because he knew that, that before he ever created them, he had made a way of salvation for them, for them to be redeemed. And just as God had a plan to save Israel uh, long before they arrived in Persia, he also, before the foundations of the world, the Bible says, planned a spiritual redemption for Adam and Eve. And because you and I are from Adam and Eve, we are born into sin. And, and so God saw before time, and he saw that we would need salvation That because we are sinners and because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and there is none righteous, that we all were going to need a redeemer. And so Jesus took on human flesh and he paid for our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says this, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, or fleshly things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Because of the bloody cross, the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I have redemption eternally. How many of you are thankful for that tonight? Amen. So throughout the book of Esther, God may be unusually quiet. His name may not be mentioned, but he still has undiminished control. He may be ignored, but his will is never thwarted by the evil of mankind. He may be unnoticed, but he remains unconquerable. When we see the power of kings, as we do in this study, we must, for, we must never forget that their power pales in comparison to the power of Almighty God. 
And Daniel reminds us uh, of that, or, or King Nebuchadnezzar really uh, is, reminds us of that, and it's recorded for us in Daniel chapter 4. It says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Let me remind you tonight, church, God has not lost his power. He has not lost his control. He is still ruling. He is still reigning. And all that he allows in our life is for something far greater than this temporal. It is eternal. It is for an eternal purpose. Uh, we also see this in Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. And so that brings us tonight kind of a, a summary of the whole story, a reminder. This is, this is God's story. He is working through the lives of his saints and he has an eternal plan of salvation, not just for his people, Israel, physically. We know that as we read scripture. He has a physical deliverance for them. But it also is a reminder for you and I that there is a greater picture. There is a greater redemptive plan, and that is for you and I in our sin. So tonight we're going to begin to go verse by verse, go through this, beginning in Esther chapter number one. And for sake of time, I won't read the whole chapter up front, but I do think that we need to read at least verses one through 12 to kind of get a, an understanding of what's going on here. So read with me, if you would, uh, verses one through 12 of Esther one. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India, even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. As we mentioned last week, this is uh, the same person that you may have heard about in history called Xerxes, all right? Same man. Here he's named King Ahasuerus. That in those days, when the King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black, Marble, And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure." Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven chamberlains. I'm not going to try to uh, give you all their names, but the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Bashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty. And I won't go into the detail, but if you were to search out what the meaning of that is, it was not only her beauty, but her nudity, her body, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth and his anger burned in him. As we go throughout chapter one, King Ahasuerus and his power and his riches are at the center of this chapter. When we talk about the providences of God, uh, the providence of God, which is one of the, the key attributes, the key character traits of God in this study, what we're talking about is God's ability to foresee, God's ability to look into the future and already to know what's going to happen. As I said, nothing takes him by surprise. But not only to, to see into the future, to know the future, but also to have the power to provide all that is needed that arises in the future. In other words, he is in complete control. It is by his plan, and yet he works in the free will of man the sovereignty of God. You say, explain all that. I can't explain all of that. Uh, if we could explain all there is about God, he wouldn't be God. But the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, which the Bible is very clear about both of them, they work in harmony one with another. And, and like we mentioned last week, when God sent the Jews into Babylonian captivity as judgment for their rebellion, when the Babylonian empire came in and and took over the Jewish people and put them in captivity, God already saw ahead to Esther chapter 1 where they are going to be under uh, the rule of, of, of the Persians. In fact, before King Ahasuerus, his grandfather, we mentioned this last week, King Cyrus, who began to allow them to go back into Jerusalem, a prophecy that was given 150 years before that ever happened. This is so important. I know we covered it last week, but I want to cover it again tonight because it's so important to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Scripture. We've said this before. There are thousands of prophecies in Scriptures that have already been revealed. That's why we know this, there's no way that this is a, a natural book. This is a supernatural book. The thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled, the many men who wrote it from different continents all coming together with such accuracy. There's no way that this could be a man-made book. This is a supernatural, God-breathed book, which it tells us in Timothy, that it is inspired by God. But we know that because of unbelievable prophecies like this one. 150 years before Cyrus was even king, he was named by name that he would uh, allow the, the, the Israelites, the, the Jews, to go back. Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 22 and 23 is the record of this. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. 
And by the way, it would have had to have been God turning the heart of the king in this situation. Remember the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whithersoever he wills. And this is an example of that because Cyrus hated the Jews. But because the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you all his people. The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. You see, God always had a plan of restoration for the Jews, for Israel. And he knew that he would use the Persian Empire to help accomplish that plan. And here in Esther 1, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is now in rule as the most powerful man in the world at this time. In fact, King Ahasuerus is referenced or mentioned by name. We said God's name is not mentioned. King Ahasuerus' name or a reference to him is mentioned 190 times in 167 verses in this book. But again, what we are reminded of is that although you may be the most powerful man of your day, you, must, you may be the most powerful man in the world and feel like you are invincible, what we are reminded of again in Esther is that every human leader is limited by all-powerful, sovereign God. And so I want you to see, first of all tonight, the realm of Persian power. This was an incredibly, incredibly powerful Empire. Even as vast as the Persian Empire was, though, we see that it's limited by the hand of God. Notice its power analyzed in four areas in chapter one. First of all, the realm of the Persian power and the Persian Empire is analyzed geographically. And it tells us in verse number one that there are 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, which one of them, which was Judah. And these, pro- these provinces spread from modern-day Pakistan to Ethiopia. If you could see a map and draw a map or, or you're to Google how far that is, it is an empire that stretched at least 2,350 miles, making it the largest world empire up to this time. And of course, with its geographical expansion also came It's military expansion. And Daniel 7, we'll look at this in detail in just a moment, but Daniel 7 shows us that Persia was represented by and described as a bear in its military power. It's described as brutal, as strong. Uh, And and historians tell us that the Persian army at this this time was, get this, 2.5 million soldiers in its army. So this was a large and a a very strong military power. We see the the realm of of Persian power analyzed geographically and militarily, but we also see it analyzed monetarily in our passage. We see that this is an extremely, extremely wealthy empire. The empire's successful military conquests also gained significant wealth. And how do we know this? Well, first of all, we see it shown up in a, in a feast that King Ahasuerus puts on. 
All in attendance would be reminded of his great influence and his great wealth. Look again at verse 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media. The, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and four score days. This feast for all the, the military and the political leaders. Listen, this is a feast that I know Baptists are big on eating, all right? We're big on, on banquets, on whatever you want to call them. Down here in the south, we call them potlucks. But can you imagine one that lasted for six months? A, a six-month potluck, a six-month banquet or feast that the king puts on here. And historians tell us that it is more than likely that he does this to flatter, to entice the military uh, for another war against Greece. This is a, a reminder to you and I of what Proverbs warns us of in Proverbs chapter 23. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to appetite. Notice the reason why. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. And more than likely, the, this, was a, this was a bribery from King Ahasuerus um, to get what he wanted, which was more power, which was more possessions, which was more pleasure for himself. And listen, we may not have the resources that King Ahasuerus or other kings have, but let's be honest this is a, a mode of man, manipulation that King Ahasuerus uses, and we have to be careful about this in our own life as well. Manipulating people to get what we want from them. Maybe uh, using wealth or money or food or whatever it is to try to manipulate them to what we want them to do. But we see that this wealth, this great wealth is shown in this this six-month feast, but we also see that it is shown in, in the material possessions. Notice the different colors that were used to decorate the unique and extravagant palace that is here for this great feast. In verses 6 and 7, where were white and green and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. Ivory imported from Ethiopia and India adorned the palace, and the blue and the white highlighted the king's royal status. Everyone who walked in here for this banquet, for this feast, they were presented with the wealth of the king, the power of the king, the possessions of the king. And it wasn't just one banquet, but it was three separate banquets all going on at the same time. One for the political uh, leaders and the military leaders, one for the men, and one for the women. So the wealth to pull off such a feast, such a banquet, for all of these people for six months was a lot of money. A lot of money that was put out here. And often when we see the, the power of wealthy and wicked and anti-God leaders 
It's easy for us to become intimidated as we look at it through human eyes, as we look at it and we become very impressed. And if they're wicked and they hate us, it can be very intimidating. But all the wealth and all the strength of the great Persian empire and every other powerful empire still cowers under the name of King Jesus. And we are reminded that Jesus is the king of kings. No matter how powerful, no matter how great they are, our king, our eternal king, King Jesus is in charge of all of the kings. He is the king of kings. And with all, the, all of King Ahasuerus' power and his wealth, he was still not a threat to God's divine plan. There is no king today around the world that ought to put you and I in fear. Doesn't matter how powerful they are. Doesn't matter how rich they are. They are still under the mighty hand of God. And God would use here even this wicked king to accomplish his own will. There's some things for us to learn from him. We, we see here the realm of the Persian power analyzed geographically. We see it analyzed monetarily. We also see it analyzed prophetically. And as we mentioned earlier, during the Babylonian Empire, where the Israelites were in captivity, it was then that Daniel had again prophesied that Persia would rise up as a great bear. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 5 gives us this account. Behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. As you read this, this is a, a clear prophecy of Persians taking over the Babylonians as God had prophesied would happen. So here in our text, while King Ahasuerus is drunk with pride, he is drunk on himself. He is convinced of his invincibility because of his power and his possessions. He is convinced that he is the reason why Persia has so much power. And yet, all along, we see that God had long, before he ever came along, determined that he would use King Ahasuerus to accomplish his own eternal plan for his people. God was the one who allowed him to ascend into his throne. And God is the one who would also fully intend to bring him down from his throne. Again, I remind you that it is God who raises leaders and God, it is God who puts down leaders. Does that, again, negate our responsibility to, to vote and to speak up for that which is right? Absolutely not. But we must remember that God has an eternal plan. You say, I'm not so sure about that. Psalm chapter 75 and verse 7 says this. God is the judge, and it is he that putteth down one and setteth up another. So we rest then in the sovereign plan of God because we have seen the prophecies that have been fulfilled. We look back and we see all these things that he prophesied would come to pass 
that have come to pass, but we also rest in the sovereign plan of God because, listen, we see that just as he has fulfilled the prophecies of the past, there are also prophecies of his coming eternal kingdom and his judgment. And we know because he has been faithful to fulfill the prophecies of the past, he is going to continue to be faithful to fulfill the prophecies of his coming kingdom and his coming judgment. And we rest in that tonight. We, we lay our head on our pillows knowing that he is the sovereign king over all. And we know the end of the story, church. Hopefully you've read the book of Revelation and you know that we win. We win. And because of that, we rest in him. We do what is right. We, we do as he has called us to do. We vote based upon biblical principles and we ought to be active in doing so. But at the end of the day, we do not go to bed at night fretting over who is in the Oval Office, over who is in the White House. Why? Because we know King Jesus is in control. Amen. We see it analyzed prophetically. And then fourthly, we see it analyzed scripturally. Do you know that the Bible has a lot to say about leaders who reject God? One thing that the word of God is very, very clear about is this. You never fight God and win. <laughs> you never fight God and win. When I was thinking about this and studying this week, I was reminded, how many of you have ever washed a window and, and it looks so clean, it looks so nice, and uh, it looks so clean that a bird doesn't even know that the window's there. And it flies right into that that window to its death. I think about that's how many kings are. They think that they're free as a bird. They think that they are, they are just in complete power of their life. They're just enjoying their power until they run into the power of God. Listen, you will never fight God and win. It's all throughout Scripture and we see this all throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 7, we're reminded of the arrogant stubbornness of Pharaoh. Can you imagine this? God giving him ten chances, plague after plague, to remind him, Pharaoh, you are not in charge. I'm in charge. Each time he ignores him, and Pharaoh has to learn this great lesson, you never fight God and win. In Daniel chapter 3 and 4, we read about Nebuchadnezzar, who in his pride was driven away from the men in his kingdom. And we see this mighty man, this powerful man, living and eating with animals. A reminder again, you never, no matter how powerful you are, you never fight God and win. In Daniel chapter 5, it's Belshazzar who was taught this as his wicked banquet, uh, at his wicked banquet when he saw the, the finger of God writing on the wall. And then in the New Testament, in, in Acts chapter 12, it's Herod Agrippa I who learned this, that when he was dying, he was being eaten by worms after, after taking the glory that belonged to only God. Another reminder, time after time, powerful man after powerful man that reminds us that you never fight God and win. And Esther Ahasuerus thought that he was the ultimate authority, but his pride would eventually bring his downfalls 
Don't be fooled by the apparent power of human kings and presidents. Paul reminds us, and I I remind us again tonight, church, Jesus is Lord, and one day every king will bow his knee to King Jesus. Every one of us will bow our knee to King Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11 says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've seen this pride in the leadership of our own nation We've regressed a great deal since the Thanksgiving proclamation of 1789 delivered by President George Washington when he wrote these words, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, something that we're studying here. George Washington brings us back to the attention of the providence of Almighty God. Listen to what he says. To obey his will and to be grateful for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection and his favor. We've come a long way from that. And Esther is another reminder for us in our own nation to remember that all leaders, evil or less evil, are ultimately under the rule and the authority and the power of Almighty God. We see the realm of this Persian power. It was, it was vast, all right? It was huge. It was massive. But secondly, I want you to see and learn some les- lessons from the revelation of a wicked ruler. Because Esther 1 reminds us and it reveals to us why wicked leaders... And not just wicked leaders, but wicked people in general. Why do they do wicked things? And it's because they, we, have wicked hearts. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 reminds us that out of the condition of our heart come all the issues of life. You want to look at your life and take a, a real clear examination of why it is the way it is or why you do what you do and why I do what I do, it comes back to the condition of our heart. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And so we look at what is revealed to us about King Ahasuerus, and I hope you will learn some things tonight from this. Look at chapter 1 again, verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... He commanded all of his guys to bring Bashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now the feast that King Ahasuerus presents to us reveals to us four things, not just about him, David, but about his heart. These are the four things that we know were in the heart of King Ahasuerus. It was an adulterous heart. It was an alcoholic heart. I'm going to alliterate these for you. It was an angry heart, and it was an arrogant heart. It was adulterous. It was alcoholic. It was angry. It was arrogant. And by the way, these four things have always, and they still do, bring down men and women. They bring them low. 
They destroy. His wicked and his prideful heart leads him to issue an illicit and a sexual and sensual command. And that's what we see, first of all, the revelation of a wicked king by an illicit command. Historians and Bible commentaries inform us that Ahasuerus had a massive harem that he continually added to. His lust had no end and it was never satisfied. He continued to feed it. You see, he had built a mighty fortress in in Shushan. He had built this great palace, but he couldn't build his own character due to his failure to control his own passions and his own spirit. And what the text is very clear about is this, that this illicit command was encouraged by alcohol. It was encouraged by alcohol, and we see it a number of of times come up in the text. After seven days of drinking at the banquet, the text tells us that King Ahasuerus was heavily under the influence of alcohol. And listen, we must not fly past passages like this and just ignore the facts that are here without dealing with this as we come to this in Scriptures that we must realize and speak about today in our society the danger of alcohol. We know by the testimony of so many, so many who could stand up here tonight and give testimony, and we also know by the warnings of Scripture that alcohol leads to the breakdown of control over our own spirits. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32, it reminds us of how valuable it is to have control over your spirit. This is the New Testament word that when you hear it, it means controlling your own spirit. It's the word temperance, having self-control. And now as Christians who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we know this, that that we need to be under the Spirit's control. Be not drunk, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by any substance. We have a responsibility as the children of God each and every day to surrender our hearts and our will to the Spirit of God that lives in us. So Proverbs 16.32 reminds us how valuable it is to have control over our spirit. It says this, he that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. It's better to have a controlled spirit than to be powerful in this earth, in this world. The New Testament commands us of this and teaches us the importance of temperance. And we're reminded in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28, listen, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. It's without protection. And listen tonight, I would be doing you an injustice if I did not speak in our culture, in our society to the demise and the destruction that alcohol is having. Just as it influenced King Ahasuerus to make this decision, it is having an even more destructive role in people's lives today in which we live. Alcohol is dangerous and it is destructive on so many levels. And the Bible has so many warnings in regards to its influence in our life. And in our text, King Ahasuerus, he loses his head. Why? Because of the influence of alcohol. He becomes under the influence of alcohol. And because of that, he then loses his queen, his wife, because of the impulse to exploit her beauty. 
influenced by alcohol, he demanded that his wife, his queen, be paraded before all of these military and political leaders to show her nudity. And there's a lot that we could say about it tonight, but God has always given strong warning to strong drink. As we look back in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel did not drink strong drink during their wilderness pilgrimage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 6. Ye have not eaten bread, neither have ye drunk wine or strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. The priests were instructed not to drink wine while serving in the tabernacle. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee. When ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. The Nazarites were forbidden from drinking not only wine, but even the skin or the seeds of the grapes. In Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels, even to the husk. And the Bible warns repeatedly against drunkenness. Now listen, church, tonight, if you can say amen to anything, you ought to say amen to this. The Bible is clear. Drunkenness is sin. Drunkenness is sin. Drunkenness on any level is a sin. And the sure way to avoid drunkenness is to avoid the first drink of alcohol. I will never become a drunk if I never take the first drink. Maybe you've already taken a drink. But let me tell you, you'll never become a drunk if you don't take another drink. Proverbs, a book given to us for the purpose of wisdom, says this clearly, Proverbs chapter 20. Wine is a mocker. And listen, I'm not asking you to listen to my opinion tonight. I'm asking you to listen to the word of God and its warnings. I'm asking you to look around at the destructive power that alcohol has had in many, many lives. And to make a personal judgment in your life, in your heart, what God wants you to do. Proverbs 21 says this, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not what? It's not wise. The Japanese proverb, first the man takes a drink and then the drink takes the man. And we have seen that over and over again. Consider tonight what alcohol does to alter our thinking, to alter our judgment, and thus our actions. It, isn't, it doesn't take rocket science to see the destructive power of alcohol and to think of the countless millions who have wrecked relationships due to the influence of alcohol. Again, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. Now, I know very well, I'm not blind, I know very well that this is a hot topic today, not just in the world, but it's a hot topic in the church. 
And on a number of occasions, I've been asked my personal conviction about this. And as you've heard me say before, and I think that you know me well enough to know that I try my best to always speak clearly where the Bible speaks, as well as not try to make the Bible say something I want it to say just because I want to say it. Let the Bible speak. And so some people would say that the Bible gives liberty for wine in some situations. And there's no doubt that wine was consumed in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. So let me just give you my personal opinion on this tonight, and I'll close with this (laughs) on this light topic. (laughs) When Kim and I were dating and we began to seriously start talking about marriage, there were things that we talked about in that time about our future, about our children, our desire for how many children, our, what we would and wouldn't allow in our home. And I remember even in those days that her and I had made this decision, we agreed together that we, when we were married, we would not have alcohol in our home, nor would we drink it in any form personally. And I wanna just give you some reasons tonight in closing why we came to that conviction based on biblical principles. Do I have friends? Do I have people? Are there people in, who come to our church who drink alcohol? I'm sure of it, but I want to challenge you not to just listen to what I say, but to listen to what the Word of God says in this area. And I feel like I would not be doing you a full service to Scripture if I did not give you a biblical warning about alcohol. All right, so here are some things that we considered. They're not in your notes, but they will be on the screen. These are some things that I'd ask you to, to think about. Number one, since I cannot be certain when I have crossed the line and become drunk or intoxicated, something that the Bible clearly forbids and condemns, I think it's wise to abstain from alcohol altogether. Since we don't know clearly, you say, well, The world has given a definition of intoxication. Well, we don't know what the Bible considers intoxicated. When you begin to lose any type of control over your thinking, over your mind, over your judgment. Number two, since I live in the modern world and have an excess of choices when it comes to what I drink, something that the people in biblical times did not have, It is wise for me to abstain from alcoholic beverages altogether because I don't need them. Again, without going into a a lot of history here, alcohol was often used in the Bible times to purify water. They did not have what we have today in purification. So that's the second reason. I don't need to drink it. I mean, you go into a store and you have a thousand choices of beverages to drink. They didn't have that in the Bible. They had, as far as I know, water and wine used to help purify the water in many cases. Number three, since I'm not convinced after studying the terminology of scripture that modern distilled fermented alcoholic beverages would be acceptable to our Lord, even in moderation, the wisest choice for me is total abstinence. Number four, This is a big one for us. Since we are called to be a witness for Christ, as well as an example, 
consuming alcohol may hurt my witness and cause some to stumble, the wisest and most loving thing for me to do is to abstain from its use. How many of you care about your witness and your testimony? It matters. It matters. And you may have no trouble stopping, but other people may. And you may be a stumbling block to one of them. You may be the cause of someone else's failure. And then fifthly, since the alcoholic industry has deceptively been the indirect cause of so much hurt, pain, chaos, and death in the world, I believe it's wise for me as a good steward to avoid supporting this industry altogether. Those are five, en- five reasons enough. Not even to get into what I do in moderation, my children may do in excess. What you do in moderation, your children may do in excess. What they see you do a little bit of, they may do a lot of. And it may not be destructive to you personally, but it may be destructive to a child or to a grandchild. And for those reasons alone, it's enough for me to say I am a, what we call a teetotaler. A teetotaler. I don't touch it. I don't need it. It's not going to help me. There's one place in Scripture where I find that the Bible says that wine can be beneficial, and that's in the health realm. Take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. You go, again, you go into a pharmacy and you go into a store, how many options do you have for an upset stomach? A lot of them. I take stuff every day for an upset stomach, all right? But for these reasons and many, many others, it's just enough for me to say, I'm just gonna stay away from it completely. There's danger in it. In our text, the king's ungodly actions were encouraged by alcohol. And this detail, did you see how many times it's mentioned here? It's, it's not just there. How many of you believe that everything in the scripture is put there for a reason? And I believe with all of my heart, this is given to us in this text for a warning to us a warning to us, the illicit command. How did this man reach the point where he's willing to parade his wife out in front of all of these men to show off her nudity? How? By the influence, number one, of alcohol. Be careful, be warned tonight. Be warned about its power, its destructive power. And then next week we'll begin, not only was it encouraged by alcohol, and maybe you don't have an alcohol problem, but you have an anger problem. Come back next week. Or some of you are like, I'm gonna skip out on next week. This illicit command, it was initiated and encouraged by alcohol, but it was also advanced by anger. Anger. 